listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program. A big show ahead, especially for those of us, those of you out there who dig on the Dark Prince. Hail Satan, the minister of sinister. Yeah, we got Satanists, people. We got Satanists. They're hiding in your couch. They're right in there, along with the change, the loose change. And also Aretha Franklin's will is in there as well. Details on Aretha Franklin's will, which was apparently discovered hidden in a couch cushion. Details on that coming up. But we want to go immediately to Gillum, Manitoba. And of course, we thought that the search had wound down. Things were pretty much finished in terms of the search for those two B.C. teenagers wanted for murder. But now... With a new discovery of several items linked to those suspects, all of a sudden things have changed a little bit in Manitoba. Here is Joe Scarpelli in Gillum with how the community is now reacting to this most recent development. Before all this uh, river search uh, started and the boat was found, there were reports of them in Ontario, several reports of the two in Ontario. So people here were kind of you know, starting to relax a little bit, and it seemed that the focus was more in Ontario. But suddenly, we're back here in northern Manitoba, and it looks like we're back to square one almost, uh, even after the police said that they were scaling back their search here. That is Joe Scarpelli reporting from Gillum, Manitoba, the very latest there. Is that mystery continues to drag on with just no resolve in sight. And we're starting to see reports from the victims' families, the uh, relatives of China Deese now worried that they may never, ever get any kind of answers to what happened to their daughter and to their sister and what happened in that northern British Columbia remote highway, what happened there. Well, on his way to Ohio and Texas today, the U.S. president noted that the Dayton shooter's purported affinity for liberal and left-wing causes. I want you to listen here to Donald Trump talking about the Dayton shooter. Questioned about his rhetoric and the anti-immigrant motivation behind the El Paso shooting, President Trump pivoted to the Dayton shooter. That was the person that supported, I guess you would say, uh, Bernie Sanders, I understood. Uh, Antifa, I understood. Elizabeth Warren, I understood. Law enforcement officials told ABC News an analysis of Connor Betts' posts and writings suggests his political views do not appear to be the motivator for the attack in Dayton. Rather, it appears to be fueled more by misogyny and overt psychological problems. Aaron Katursky, ABC News, New York. And once again, we go looking for causes where there are none. And it's not about left and right, but it is about something completely different. Here again is the U.S. president saying there's a very strong political appetite in Congress for legislation that would address background checks for restrictions for gun users. Trump saying that the gunman responsible for mass shootings is not about guns and access to guns. It's about mental illness. These are sick people. These are people that are really mentally ill, mentally disturbed. It's a mental problem. So it's not the guns. The guns aren't responsible. Do you agree with that? Meanwhile, here in this province and in this city, handgun ban is once again a hot political potato. Premier Doug Ford 
has not changed his opposition to a handgun ban, despite Toronto Mayor John Tory renewing a push for a ban following the weekend of violence in this city. Spokesperson for Ford saying Tuesday that the Premier was last asked about a handgun ban in 2018 and his position has not changed. Such a ban will have no impact on those who do not obey the law. According to the spokesperson for the Premier, we do not believe that it is an effective way to combat guns and gangs. A ban doesn't mean much when it's criminals that are getting the guns. But from handgun bans to preparing for the worst, we are seeing this more and more in schools. Do your kids ever talk about lockdown drills and what that does to them, what that does to their state of mind, their ability to concentrate, to work at school? Are we doing a disservice to our kids by preparing them for something that is so absolutely horrific? There are growing concerns in the United States that the practice of active shooter drills may actually be doing more harm than good. Here's Sherry Preston. Last weekend, just hours after the El Paso and Dayton shootings, a mall in South Florida went ahead with an active shooter drill, terrifying scores of people who hadn't been told it was coming. At a school in Cranberry Township, Pennsylvania recently, police fired blanks into hallways to simulate the sound of gunfire. One teacher said she felt more traumatized than trained. Across the country, active shooter drills have become big business, but some psychologists say they are making people, especially children, even more stressed out and anxious, especially relative to how many people experience an actual shooter face-to-face in real life. Sherry Preston, ABC News. I know I've had uh, those conversations with my kids when they talk about, oh, we had a drill today at school, we had to lock all the doors and get under our desks. What does that do to a child's psychology to imagine Something like that. And do we need to have our kids imagining that? Or is that for our own sense of satisfaction or or just to make us feel better as parents? It's difficult to know precisely. But meanwhile, in New York, the New York Police Department saying now that it was just loud noises of motorcycles backfiring that caused a panic and sent people scrambling in Times Square. This, of course, is a sign of the times. The department tweeting about the situation last night. Here's reporter Jim Dolan. The NYPD tweeted out there is no active shooter in Times Square. Motorcycles backfiring while passing through may have sounded like gunshots. We are receiving multiple 911 calls. Please don't panic, the tweet said. The Times Square area is very safe. That is a sign of the times, is it not? Preparing for the worst, fearing the worst. Earlier on this uh, radio station, Jeff Urich was on this program, was on the uh, Kelly Cotrero program, actually. And he was talking about something that I think you need to think about here in this province, and that is recycling. You know, the Ford government says it's going to get out of the blue box business. The program is currently run by the Ontario Stewardship Council, and that cost is split with the municipalities. However, this new report out for the government by David Lindsay recommends that producers of waste, basically businesses, provide blue box collection and pay the entire cost. Here is the Environment Minister, Jeff Urick, just a little while ago, saying that the program as it is now has stalled. Well, the, the, the cost of the program will be transferred over to the uh 
the producers of the waste, the businesses and industry that's creating the waste, uh, they will be uh, the ones who will be uh, paying for uh, the recycling program once this change occurs. And, you know, municipalities will see uh, quite a bit of savings uh, in their budgets. I, If I were you, I would not be dancing my way to the bank as a taxpayer. Yep, you may actually see a reduction in municipal taxes, perhaps. But what do you think is going to happen to this cost that we're going to say, well, now producers and businesses, you have to pay this cost. They're going to pass it on to you and me. You know that. That is how economics works. The minister says that overall, you're going to be happy. I think they'll be excited about that. First of all, I think they're going to be shocked that 30% of their, their blue boxes and going in uh, to recycling. And I think they'd be uh, excited about the fact that uh, we're turning the channel and putting more product into the recycling system and reusing it. And uh, hopefully, you know, at the end of the day, we create a new economy of recycled products uh, here in Ontario because of the program that's going to be put in place. Turning the channel, that is the Minister of Environment, Jeff Urich, talking about the Blue Box program and changes planned for it here in Ontario. Changing the channel, you heard the minister say that. Has the Ford government effectively done that? Has it effectively changed the channel from its troubles in its first year in government? It certainly hopes so. And when we come back on the Alan Carter Radio Program, our Queen's Park Bureau treat Chief Travis Danraj will join me on the line to talk about provincial politics and what's happening with Doug Ford. He just popped up on Twitter doing something. Wasn't on his agenda. I'll play that for you when we come back. A British Columbia man accused of swimming naked in a shark tank in the Toronto Aquarium is expected to plead guilty to mischief for that incident next month. David Weaver of Nelson, British Columbia, was arrested and charged in October of last year, four days after that alleged incident. Police say he went to Ripley's Aquarium in downtown Toronto, peeled it right down to the base, and jumped into the shark tank. Videos taken by patrons surfaced on social media, attracted international attention, showed a naked man swimming in the tank with tiger sharks, sawfish, and moray eels. Now, more seriously, because that is hysterically funny. I could just watch it all day. But considerably more serious is the allegations that earlier that night, Weaver had assaulted a man outside of Medieval Times, a show where actors play knights and joust. A window was broken as well. Weaver was charged with assault and mischief in that incident, which will be dealt separately by court. So the assault, serious. If you want to swim naked with the sharks, that's apparently just a mischief charge. So just keep that in mind as the weekend comes upon us, in case you're thinking of doing anything. You know who we have on the line right now is we're going to bring in Travis Danrash because we want to talk a little bit about... Doug Ford and what is going on in the provincial government. Travis, hello, sir. Hey, good morning. Uh, have you ever good jumped naked? In, have you ever jumped naked into a Shark Tank? Have you ever considered no, that? But but I am considering it now. I don't know whether or not I do it at Ripley's, but I have gone shark diving before, <laughs> but never naked. Never. I was, in a, okay. I was in a wetsuit. All right. Well, there's a visual. 
I want to play a little bit. I want to play a little bit of audio, and if you can imagine, speaking of visuals, this is uh, audio of some video just posted a little while ago by the premier. Uh, he was outside a church, and basketball. here here he is uh, playing a little basketball uh, with some kids. And and what you're seeing when you hear this is uh, the premier actually lifting the kids up so that they can dunk. And it's all very, it's great. It's a lovely piece of video. Here's the thing, Travis. Did we know anything about this happening? No, absolutely not. I think it was next to Deco, actually, that basketball court Deco labeled. Really? No, I mean, this is kind of typical um, in terms of communication. Ontario News Now uh, will be there, but the actual media aren't alerted to any photo ops and sometimes we find out about there was an incident last week i think where um there was an actual uh, announcement happening with the premier on the same day where you know a couple other announcements were were happening we found out about the other announcements but not the where the premier was so uh, and, but i mean that it's it, it it unfortunately is not surprising and then, like you say, this will show up on, and if it isn't already on Ontario News Now, and then there are the questions of access. Of course, and they're currently, you know, probably downstairs and an edit suite cutting uh, together a promotional video. Um, Ontario News Now and Lindsay Vanstone will be there with a one-on-one exclusive interview uh, with the Premier and talking to some of those basketball players, possibly. But yeah, I mean, it goes to the heart of the issue when it comes to access and this government and, and just kind of the the very structured way that we are we are able to have access to the premier. We, you know, I was in a, a bit of a uh, fight with them last week because I wanted to do a one-on-one with one of their ministers. I asked for a one-on-one with the premier as well. You know, I have for the past couple of months now and and to no avail. Uh, and then they say, well, you know, he, he gives access and the ministers give access at these press conferences. But you have to understand, uh, just to kind of pull the curtain back a little bit on this, what, you know, I'm representing global news. Uh, others are representing other networks and papers. And you have one question, one follow-up. You know, one question, one follow-up, not necessarily enough to get into, uh, you know, in-depth into some of these issues that we're looking into. Well, the premier he likes talk radio. He likes to call in unexpectedly. Yeah. Uh, he has called this radio program, although not recently, because the last time he called here, he made a guarantee that everybody would get legal aid by just calling his office, and that that but perhaps he didn't turn out. To complain, right about about facts that are being given on yes. on the radio. Yeah, he, he's not calling to say, "Hey, Alan, how are you? What what what? You know, you're so wonderful." He's calling. To- <laughs> and maybe Premier can lift me up so I can dunk. There you go. <laughs> um, but I guess my point is is that there, there's a lot of consternation and concern in the federal camp, in the federal conservative camp, that that Ford you know, might shoot from the lip a little bit, especially once we get into the real serious campaigning in the uh, federal campaign. Do you think he can actually keep quiet? I mean, is that is that the play here, just to go to ground? Well, and I think that that is why, you know, everything we just talked about is, is happening right now, why uh, communication strategy is that 
you know, where, where Ontario News Now knows about something and the general media does not because they want to be as quiet as they can over the next little while, even though they haven't been doing the best job of that, you know, this patronage scandal, um, which has been going on since, I think, June 20th, the, the day of the shuffle has continued. Um, there was a story a couple of weeks ago about his re-election committee and more than a dozen people on that re-election committee being lobbyists of the government. Um, even last week, there was, you know, uh, the, the wet law for um, report came out. There are recommendations uh, in that report about long-term care. Then the next day after that, they were under you know, fire for cutting funding to two long-term care programs. So, uh, I mean, they are on break here. They're out of Queen's Park. There's not going to be question period until October 28th, which is well after the, actually seven days after the federal election. So we'll see whether or not they can keep quiet up until that point. Here's the flip side to all the things that you're talking about. They have replaced Dean French. There is a uh, new leadership within the premier's office. There is talk about a detente with not only with MPPs, but also a reach out across the aisle to uh, City Hall to try and mend some fences there. A- am I overreading that? No, I think I think that you're right, and I you know I I genuinely think um, that the premier, when he said on June 20th, I think it was the day of the the cabinet shuffle, he said I wanted to flip the page and get to year two and take a fresh kind of uh, start uh, at year two. I think he wants to do that, but some of the stuff, you know, the um, patronage stuff with Dean French, that's residual uh, leftover from year one and the team that was in place in year one. Can he get past it? Well, it's been a bit of a challenge so far, but I I, I do think that they genuinely want to get past it, and they have made some steps and some strides toward that effort. The Premier was very outspoken and very angry about the situation from Cam H last month when we had the uh, person basically walk away and then just leave the country, and now... This development that the Ministry of Health is actually going to participate directly in the review that CAMH has ordered about its passes, what does that tell you about the confidence that this government has in CAMH? Well, I mean, and you heard that from the premier sentiments, right? I mean, how, how could somebody uh, with this history walk away, literally, from, from this facility? And this has happened several times. Uh, I, I think that the government's very concerned about it. And yesterday uh, they put out a statement and the health minister was out saying that she wants um, to have her ministry have a direct role in an external panel, which is going to be reviewing how the Center for Addiction and Mental Health handles these patients, these potentially dangerous patients. And one of the big concerns that she has and that the government has is how quickly the public is notified. In many of these cases that the public wasn't notified quickly enough, and that is something that they are looking to change, and they are going to address that. What are you uh, looking for in the next couple of weeks? What's on your agenda? What's uh, on your radar coming down the pipe? Uh, Well, I am hearing from my sources that there's going to be a pretty significant announcement next week on education, Uh, and if you kind of read between the lines, they've announced uh, most things other than the physical education sex ed curriculum. So we'll find out finally after these consultations what uh, the changes are to the physical education curriculum. That announcement's going to come from Stephen Lache. Um, there was also this report uh, came out yesterday, and we'll see how the government handles the uh, David Lindsay report on Blue Box 
is and what we throw into those blue boxes. And apparently more than 50% of what you put in to recycle actually um, goes in the trash. And so, you know, what the government is saying essentially is that that's a huge cost to municipalities and there could be some cost savings there. Uh, yeah, except so for the, we'll, the, we just played some of that from Uric and he's saying he's going to pass that on to businesses and surprise, surprise, guess where that's going to end up? It's going to end up costing you and me the consumer. Which is, you know, which is going to be the debate that happens, but obviously they're going to frame this as they are saving municipalities money. Well, we'll find out what the municipalities have to say once they once they say what they're going to do with these recommendations, but that's coming in the next little while as well. And then there is also the unknown, which has been kind of the most interesting part covering Queen's Park as to, you know, there's a bombshell that drops and you don't really know about it. That could be around the corner. So we'll, we'll, I mean, it's quiet right now. It has been a couple of quiet days today. They were talking about, um, be, uh, supporting bee pollination. Bees. <laughs> Bees. <laughs> so, you know, it's a quiet summer day when that's the, of the big well, that's the news. Yeah. Yeah. We got anything on birds? Because maybe these could go together, and then we'd have something interesting. There you go, yeah. All right, Travis, i got to let you go. That is Travis Nehrez at uh, Global's Queens Park Bureau Chief. Thanks, Travis. Appreciate your time. No problem. Talk to you soon. I really want to talk to you about some uh, quick uh, crime news. One, did you hear this out of the city of Vaughan? I want to play some of this audio here. This is from York Regional Police just this morning. We have this. This is an impaired driver, apparently refusing to move her vehicle from a drive through So, ma'am, can you get back in your vehicle, please? Yeah. You're welcome. And do you have any identification on you? Oh, why? Huh? Why? Okay, because we were called here because there's an issue going on with you. I don't know, not moving your vehicle out of the drive through You're also operating a car, so I do need to make sure that your license is so. So I'm asking you for some identification. I wasn't driving, so I was just ordering some How did the vehicle get here? I don't know. I just ordered some Okay, so have you had any, any drugs, any alcohol tonight? No. Okay, can I get some identification? That's my partner there. I was not driving. I just want to get some food. That's all. I was not so driving. So there's no one else here? No. But like, I'm I in the car, but okay, I'm not driving. So can I see some identification, please? You yeah. are listening to York Regional Police. This is audio released from the uh, police department just uh, a couple of hours ago. That uh, driver that you listened to there has been charged with impaired-related criminal driving offenses. I'm not driving. i just in this drive-through behind the wheel of a car. I'm just getting food. I'm not, see, I'm not driving. I have a piece of advice for you, especially for those one percenters listening. Don't have sex with the staff. This is a cautionary tale from the Waffle House, specifically the Waffle House chairman, Joseph Rogers Jr. Uh, a long-term dispute between him and his former housekeeper has now been settled. It's a seven-year-long dispute. The former housekeeper secretly recorded them having sex. 
This confidential deal was announced moments after Rogers' attorney gave his opening a statement in a civil trial. This is in Georgia. News outlets report the terms were not disclosed. Now, here's the story. Rogers accused his former housekeeper in a lawsuit in 2012 of recording their sexual encounters in an attempt to extort him. The woman says she just recorded the acts as proof of Rogers' repeated sexual harassment. So, that has been cleared up. Just keep that in mind. I don't know if that applies to you, but just keep it in mind. A tiny species of nearly indestructible creatures may have taken over the moon. That is correct. The moon may have already been taken over. Jeff Goldblum? Life uh, finds a way. Thank you, Jeff Goldblum. Thousands of microscopic tardigrades likely survived a lunar lander crash into the moon last April. That, according to the founder of the Earth Archive Project. The spacecraft slammed into the lunar surface on April 11th after operators lost control of it during its final landing sequence. And the cargo on this spacecraft likely survived. What in the world is it? Paul Delaney is 640 Toronto's astronomy and space exploration expert. Paul, is it the end of days as we know it? Afraid not, Alan. Uh, <laughs> they're safe on the moon, and the, the the good news is that the tardigrades aren't going anywhere, and they're not multiplying. Uh, the, these are tiny, tiny little microbes, uh, and as you indicated in your your uh, intro, they really are close to indestructible. They have an in, an amazing resilience, but like all forms of life, they need a, sort of a habitable environment to breed, shall we say. When they went to the moon, they were basically in a dehydrated state. So they were in uh, the term that is being used is suspended animation, but uh, that's really not quite correct. A, a tardigrade is hibernating until the conditions under which it can survive and thrive uh, appeared. And that means an atmosphere, that means water. So yes, there are literally thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of little tardigrades in this hibernating state sitting on the surface of the moon somewhere, and they are waiting for somebody to come by, pick it up, and put it into a hospitable environment for them to revive. As long as they're sitting on the surface of the moon, they're not doing anything except continuing to hibernate. And uh, it's unlikely that anybody's going to pick them up anytime soon. So eventually the solar radiation, the harsh environment of the moon will get to them. So they are not indestructible, but they are hardy. So this is not a situation like in Australia, you know, where they brought in rabbits for some reason. Next thing, the rabbits took over the entire continent. That's not, it's not the same? Great example for my home continent. No, not the same at all. Uh, when they brought over the rabbits, you know, that was, it was foolhardy. And, of course, they were able to breed in a very good environment straight away with next to no predators or not much in the way of predatory action. Uh, that is certainly not the case here. The tardigrades, as I say, are in this hibernating state and will remain that way until somebody puts it inside an atmosphere and gives it some water. And even then, depending on how long they're exposed to the harsh environment of the moon, they may not come out of it. So they're on the moon, yes, but are they about to take over the moon? Sorry, no. (laughs) Let's go back to Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. Life uh, finds a way. Is it possible that life could find a way on the moon in a way that we don't understand? 
Well, I don't want to say Jeff is wrong on this particular point, but the environment in Jurassic Park versus the environment on the moon are very, very different. Uh, so I guess if you and I wandered up to the moon and we certainly were able to terraform the moon in short order, as in, the, say, the next 10 to 20 years, then the tardigrades may, in fact, be able to replicate, but they're not about to take over you and me, uh, but they could thrive and they could survive. But that's not a scenario that's about to happen. The, the lunar environment really is very harsh. And yes, life is very resilient. The extremophiles that we find on Earth are amazingly resilient, and tardigrades do fall into that category. But even the most resilient of organisms is unlikely to survive the harsh environment of the moon for a particularly extended period of time, as in decades. And it is unlikely that you or I or any tourist on the moon is going to ha happen by the, uh, the landing site, if I can use the crash site, perhaps is a better term, of Beersheet, uh, that was the Israeli lander that was carrying these tardigrades, it's unlikely we're going to go by, pick them up, and bring them inside any hospitable environment anytime soon. So yes, resilient are the tardigrades, but they need to have a pretty good atmosphere and water to be able to uh, you know, replicate. Paul Delaney is 640 Toronto's astronomy and space exploration expert. Thank you so much for being with me, Paul. You're welcome, Alan. All right, Bye. take care of yourself. Uh, great news for drivers, especially if you uh, use the DVP like I do each and every day. It has been an absolute mess for the majority of the summer with all of those bridge repairs underway. Morgan Campbell from Global News is reporting on some developments on the project and joins me on the line. Hi, Morgan. Hey, Alan, how are you? I'm great. I'm especially going to be better if it turns out that heading north on the DVP <laughs> from my station here down at Chorus Key up to Don Mills is going to be faster. Is it going to be faster? I think it's going to be, Alan, it's not going to be that white-knuckled drive that we've been battling um, for, what, since July 2nd. Um, you know what? It, it's you don't hear about this very often, but the construction work on Don Mills Bridge actually wrapped up early. How odd. <laughs> really, I mean, road work is always so late. But no, it wrapped up early. It was supposed to be mid to the end of August. Um, so they're going to start construction on stage Two. Oh, oh, wait a minute, wait yeah. a minute. That does not... <laughs> see, when they're like, hey, we're done, stage one. And then you think, well, hold on now, what's stage two, Morgan? You know, it's funny because it's almost like, we're done stage one, tricked you, but we have another phase coming at you. <laughs> so what is going to happen right now is they're going to, it won't be as big of an impact. I guess let's start off with the positives here. So it's going to be the southbound DVP on-ramp from northbound Don Mills Road, that area will be closed. Now, other enclosures in this, or other closures in this fade, phase actually include the northbound DVP on-ramp from eastbound Lawrence Avenue and the southbound DVP on-ramp from westbound Lawrence Avenue. Now, they're also going to kind of close the north and southbound shoulders of the DVP at Don Mills Road, Spanbridge Road, Winford Drive, and Lawrence Avenue East. I know, I feel like that was a huge mouthful. Yeah, so. wait a minute, i got to get my compass. <laughs> you're just like, huh? <laughs> no, but I, 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 your point is is that, that it, it's better, but it's not done. Yeah, and, and that's just it. I mean, it is, it's, it's going to be way better. It isn't done. We're not going to see phase number two done until October. And before everybody starts throwing their hands up, you know, 
wanting to throw in the towel and get rid of the car, I just want to mention this rehabilitation work, these facelifts on these bridges are absolutely needed. This is, you know, aging infrastructure. There's, there's, a lot of concern among engineers about the structural integrity of these bridges. So I know it's a headache, but Alan, it is work that simply just has to be done. Morgan Campbell is a reporter with Global News, and you can see her report on the update on what's going on with DVP and all of those bridges tonight on Global News. Thanks, Morgan. Appreciate you being with us. Thanks for having me, Alan. When we come back, we are going to be talking about the return of 90210, and in a related event... Hail Satan, the minister of sinister... Satanists. Yes, Satanists. Welcome back to the program. The Ontario Provincial Police, as I do a little bit of stutter in there, the Ontario Provincial Police are warning about a scam. You may have heard of this one before. It's not particularly new, this particular scam, but it may be new to people in your family. And if you have, you know, elderly parents, you, you may just want to mention this because out of Picton, Ontario... A emergency scam cost a mom there six grand. Police say the woman received a frantic phone call from a man claiming to be her son. He said he's in jail after a serious motor vehicle collision. Then the call gets turned over to somebody claiming to be a lawyer. The alleged lawyer tells mom, you got to put six grand in an account right now or else he won't get out. She does it, then contacts her son, and of course, it's not him. He was not in trouble, was not in jail. This has happened a bunch of times, but again, that is a warning, again, that that is going on. It's something to maybe just, you know, if again, just talk to your parents. Listen, I know that you probably would believe that I would be in jail, Mom. I know that I know that a call from me at a, at a jailhouse probably doesn't seem like it would be unusual, but if that happens, maybe don't just put the cash in right away. Find out. I want to talk about entertainment, a trip down memory lane tonight on TV. The cast of the original Beverly Hills 90210 returns for a reboot. Of course, missing from the reboot is Luke Perry, who died earlier this year. Shannon Doherty says she agreed to star in the show in Perry's honor. You know, I don't know how many times I said that I would like never go back. Um, And I was pretty like adamant about that. And then Luke passed away and it just it felt like the right thing to do. It it's it just felt like a good move, a right thing, honoring somebody that I cared very, very, very much about in my life. Rather than playing their characters, Canadian actor Jason Priestley, Jenny Garth, Doherty, and the rest of the cast will appear as versions of themselves. I never liked that show. Never did. I couldn't get into it. In the 90s, it was a thing. People got together for viewing parties. They did the whole thing. It was not my deal. It was not my jam. You were into Melrose Place. I was more of a Melrose guy. To be the truth, be told. Uh, I want to give you a quick update on Aretha Franklin. We talked about this at the beginning of the program. We also talked about this yesterday. Do not store your will in the couch cushions. Don't do that. A Michigan judge has now placed the administration of Aretha Franklin's estate under court supervision. The judge has agreed to allow a handwriting expert to examine wills discovered after the singer's death in the couch. 
supposed wills of Aretha Franklin's found in her couch cushions after she died will be examined by a handwriting expert. A judge ruled that Tuesday in Detroit as Franklin's heirs continue to battle over her estate. The judge also decided that while the issue of who controls the estate is up in the air, the court will supervise all major decisions going forward. We also learned that there might be some issues with a planned movie about Franklin's life starring Jennifer Hudson, which is due out next year from MGM. Moving from that to Satan and Satanism. I don't know if you know this, but there has been a surge in Satanic activity. And listen, I grew up in a day and age when, you know, the Omen and all the rest of those movies, you know, Satanists were evil people. Turns out that Satanists are just friendly, lovable. They just, they just, they don't like your religion is all. And they want to mock it. And coming up in this country is something called a black mass. Apparently one of the first ones that's ever happened in this country. What is it all about? Well, Jamie Marocker is a reporter with Global News. Jamie's middle name is Beelzebub. And she joins us on the line. Hi, Jamie. Thanks for being with us, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Can I call you Beelzebub for the remainder of this interview? Sure, why not? Okay. <laughs> uh, so turns out that Satanism doesn't necessarily mean a devotion to the evil prince. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So when you're talking about specifically the Satanic temple, um, we're not so much talking about devil worship. So their literature clarifies that they actually don't worship the devil. For the most part, they use Satan as a symbol and as a metaphor, according to um, an expert from Concordia University, and also, like I said, according to their literature. Okay, but why don't we just, why don't they just call themselves atheists or free speech warriors? Why you got to go bring Satan into this? You know, I think to each their own, and they have a right to practice whatever they'd like. This is the religion that they've chosen, and, you know, this is the direction that they'd like to go in. So we could ask that about any religion, I guess. This strikes me, though, as a uh, a, a teenager religion. It's a giant raspberry, a middle finger to the world. It's outrageous because it's supposed to be outrageous. That's the whole point, is it not? Well, you know what's interesting? I think over the last few decades, um, the Satanic Temple specifically has become a sign of, dare I say, extreme liberalism. So, um, yes, you know, they do, for example, what we're talking about today is the Black Mass. They do um, mock certain portions of other religions, and they say it's not to be offensive, um, though some do take offense to it. But at the same time, they are uh, doing other things. They are, you know, going out and putting up statues. They are going out and um, pushing forward gay rights, that sort of thing. So there is another side to this temple specifically than just devil worship, evil, that sort of thing. What is a black mass? Okay, so it honestly depends who you ask, but there's one element that most of the experts I spoke with can agree on, and that is there's some sort of desecration of Christian symbols. 
like I said, that is offensive, and rightly so to a lot of people. However, uh, when I spoke to the Canadian chapter, the only Canadian chapter of the Satanic Temple, um, the leader told me that it's not meant to be an attack on another group. It's actually supposed to be cathartic for those who practice it. So essentially, it involves using traditional symbols and inverting them to create a ritual that is meant to be the opposite of a traditional mass. However, if you go look at the history of Black Mass, it is much darker. So it includes things such as demon worship, deviant sex, consuming a black host versus um, the host that you would eat at Sunday Mass, blood or urine in lieu of wine. And in some cases, there have even been stories of child sacrifices. So when I dug a little bit deeper and I went and looked more into the history of this, um, while a lot of these are just legends and rumors, there are some instances that have been reported as facts. For one example, um, I'll take you back to 1889, and this was published by a reporter, a French reporter, in Le Matin. And the reporter actually was invited to a black mass and said that they saw a woman stretched out naked on an altar. Mass was read over her body, and that mass actually culminated with an orgy. And if you go back to the very first black mass, or what is... Um, potentially the first Black Mass recorded ever. That dates back to the court um, of Louis, King Louis. I mean, we're taking it back so far. Um, but he said to have sacrificed a baby in hopes of preserving his love for his mistress. Um, now, again, that could be in part rumor, could be in part truth. Um, we weren't there. We don't know. These are just history texts that I'm taking this from. <laughs> but, yeah, there, to, there will be a test at, end of, at the end of this, Jamie. <laughs> when it comes to today, um, Satanic Temple says they do not believe in harming anybody whatsoever, and they're adamant that they do not perform sacrifices. Yeah, but this is the whole thing. This whole Satanic Temple that, and, and the sort of the growth in it, really this is just kind of a counterculture thing. Like I say, it's a giant middle finger to organize religion. Yeah, that's one way to look at it, I guess. I, I am not a part of the Satanic Temple. I can't tell you what happens on a daily basis. I can only tell you what they've told us. And I can also tell you that while it may be, you know, a middle finger to other religions, extreme liberalism, whatever you want to call it, it is growing, and it is growing extremely quickly, Alan. Um, they can't keep up with membership. There is only one um, official Canadian chapter that's in Ottawa, as I mentioned, However, there is groups, uh, kind of offshoot groups, called the Friends of the Satanic Temple. There's one here in Toronto. I'm actually meeting with a member today, and they're um, super excited about this Black Mass that's supposed to be happening on August 17th. It's the first official one in Canada, um, according to the Satanic Temple. And uh, they say that they hope to become an official, official group as well. Jamie Beelzebub Marocker. With all your Satan news today, and you can, of course, watch Jamie's report tonight on Global News. Jamie, uh, I'm giving the devil sign right now to you. Thank you so much. And, of course, you can watch Jamie's report tonight. Hail Satan, the minister of sinister. Always good when we have a little Satanist news. Uh, speaking of devilish, this from Port Charlotte, Florida. A Florida woman is a little upset because she has to now rebuild her bathroom. Turns out her toilet exploded. A plumber says that what happened is that lightning hit her septic tank 
And that triggered an explosion of the methane gas generated by the feces in the septic system pipes. Now, for those of you who don't know, feces is poo, just in case you're wondering. So that, that's crappy, is what that is. And, of course, you know what we like to do here on the program on a regular basis is, did you just, did someone say poo? Uh, we like to give you the alligator news. Alligators? That's right. Alligators. They're coming for all of us. New stats out of Florida, always out of Florida. Turns out that Florida men make up the overwhelming majority of alligator attack victims. Why? Because men are stupid. They are more likely to try and feed alligators. And, and this is where I believe the selection of the fittest comes in, golf courses were found to be alligator attack hotspots. 14% of the total number of recorded attacks take place on a golf course. And of those, 75% were men diving to retrieve their golf balls. That, ladies and gentlemen, is Darwinism at its best. Alligators? That's right.